0: It's a pleasure to be here again. It's been maybe, maybe two, three years since I preached here. Sure, I don't remember exactly, but I know I uh, participated with a, an apologetics conference here last November that Chris Wessler put together. And just for clarity, in case you're wondering, I am not Brandon Barrett, but uh, I uh, have been accused of being his evil twin in years past. So, but uh, it is it's good to be back. Yeah, from uh, 2003 to 2009, just by way of updating you on what we've been doing, uh, I was the RUF campus minister down at VCU, and uh, summer of 2009 transitioned from doing RUF to sort of starting, although it sort of had a preexistence in a way, uh, the Richmond Center for Christian Study, which is, it's a, a new nonprofit in the Richmond area. Um, And the the mission statement of the Richmond Center for Christian Study is to essentially be used of God to bring further gospel transformation to the greater Richmond area by fostering serious consideration and discussion of a biblical worldview and how that worldview bears on every area of life and culture. It's sort of a cousin to Francis Schaeffer's Labrie Fellowship, if you're familiar with that. There are about 40-some-odd study centers throughout the country. And uh, basically, we do what we do by bringing in various speakers, offering courses for students and people throughout Greater Richmond. And uh, of course, uh, here in Williamsburg, you're welcome to come on by. You're not too far down the road. Uh, Internships specifically for students at the University of Richmond. And eventually, uh, we want to have a uh, bricks and mortar physical resource center right there next to the University of Richmond for the students there and for the Greater Richmond community and whoever else might be so inclined to, dri- to drive about an hour away. Uh, we're pushing hard to get sufficient funding for that. We're, we're close. We're, we're essentially, I, I know with RUF you're familiar with the whole fundraising aspect of things. We're at about $6,000 per month right now. We need to inch that up to about 7000 per month before we can pull the trigger on at least a starter resource center. So we're close, but we're not quite there uh, yet. And. Uh, Probably similar to RUF here. I know it was true with VCU. Most of our supporters give $25, $50 a month, not a lot, but it all comes together to accomplish the goal. So having said that, if you are interested in being a little piece of what is happening there, definitely feel free to come and talk with me about that. So we're we're hoping to get to where we need to be this summer so we can pull the trigger and be ready for even this fall if possible. So that's kind of where we are with that. And, one of the things we do in various ways with the Richmond Study Center is we ask questions like, what does the Bible have to say about, and fill in the blank, some big topic of life? And, and I can already sense the theme of joy today. I think we've been very consciously doing that. And that's, a, that's a, a perfect example. What does God have to say in His Word about the question of joy in our lives? And that's what we're going to look at in... Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 this morning, so I invite you to turn uh, there with me. You know, part of what it means to grow in Christ's likeness is to grow in joy. That's an integral part of what it means to grow in Christ's likeness. In fact, you might not have thought about it this way before, but according to the Bible, we're actually commanded to have joy. That really strikes us as odd because in most of our minds, joy is something that has more to do with our mood. Am I in a good mood or bad mood or whatever? And that has a lot to say about whether I am joyful or not. How can the Bible command that we have joy in all circumstances? But that's what Philippians uh, 4, 4 says when Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. It's just kind of an interesting observation. And in fact, the Bible says we need joy. And I think we know that from our corporate human experience. Uh, Nehemiah 8.10 says the joy of the Lord, that's our strength. We need joy. That's the way God has made us. And the book of Philippians that we're going to look at this morning is known as the letter of joy. In fact, the word joy or rejoice is used Sixteen times in this short little book its, it's not a very long letter—which in terms of frequency is about seven times more frequent than the New Testament otherwise. So that's—that's that's a lot of references to joy. So definitely, Paul is talking about joy uh, in his letter. Let's read uh, Paul's words in Philippians chapter one, verses one through seven, and I'm using the NIV. Hear God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross and that you raised him from the dead to take us from being enemies of God to making us friends of God and even more than that, sons and daughters of God. And we thank you for the joy that that gives us in our lives. We pray, Father, that the Spirit of Christ would work in us to draw people to yourself and to grow your joy in your kingdom and the fruit of your Spirit in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you know the name Horatio Gates Spafford? Yes, we can be interactive, that's okay. Okay, some do, that's good, that's good. Uh, Spafford was born in 1828. He spent his early years in New York and then moved to Chicago and became a successful lawyer and businessman. He was a deeply spiritual man. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was involved with the Young Men's Christian Association. But in the 1870s, his faith was tested by a series of tragic events, if you know much about his life. In 1871, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed real estate all along the shores of Lake Michigan, and a tremendous portion of Spafford's investments were wiped out. Two years later, in 1873, a physician advised The Spaffords to go on a vacation (laughs) for the sake of Mrs. Spafford's health and for the family's well-being with the trials that they were facing. So they decided to leave for vacation to England. Spafford's wife, Anna, and their four daughters, Maggie, Tanetta, Annie, and Bessie, set sail, but Mr. Spafford was detained uh, by business And his intention was to follow after them after his business was finished in a few days. But on November 22nd, 1873, the Spafford's ship was struck by an English ship off the coast of Newfoundland. And it sank in 12 minutes. 226 lives were lost, including the Spafford's four daughters. After hours of floating in the turbulent waters, Mrs. Spafford herself was rescued. And when she arrived in Wales, she sent a telegram to her husband with the message, saved alone. I mean, can you even imagine that? I can't even begin to imagine that. And the question I wanna ask is how could you possibly have joy in the midst of a trial like that. Let's just be real. Let's be honest. In fact, I have to be honest, when I read Paul's words here and I hear a story like that, it seems to me that Paul just has his head in the sand when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And yet we have to remember where Paul's writing. Paul is writing this letter in prison, and waiting to hear if he is going to live or die. More than that, we read in Acts 16, go ahead and turn to Acts 16 if you want to flip there quickly, that Paul was thrown in prison once before, after being beaten, and how did he respond? Let's read. Acts 16 Let's just look at verses 22 to 25. Of course, it was uh, the habit of the authorities to beat and imprison the apostles for preaching the gospel, and this is an example of that. Acts 16:22 to 25, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. That's just bizarre. Well, does does this then mean that Paul just somehow disconnected himself from the troubles of life, unplugging himself, maybe like a Buddhist, and went around being happy and cheery? Certainly not. After all, Jesus himself, according to Isaiah 53, 3, that great Messianic prophecy looking ahead to the coming Messiah, Jesus himself is referred to in Isaiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So we're not unplugging, we're not burying our head in the sand. Jesus himself was known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet somehow, at the same time, he was empowered by the Spirit that produces joy. Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit that indwelt Jesus, God become man, and the Spirit that in, indwells you and me as believers, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. That's what the Spirit of God produces within us. How in the world do we put these things together? Honesty about life, true sorrow, true brokenness, and a Spirit-produced joy it seems kind of contradictory. Well, James Montgomery Boyce said. Things may happen to the Christian that no one, including the Christian, would be happy about. But there can still be joy. He's making a distinction somehow there, isn't he? Boyce defines joy as a supernatural delight in God and in God's goodness. And it is a very different thing from happiness. Happiness is circumstantial, but not joy. Joy is an inner quality of delight in in God, or gladness, and it is meant to spring up within the Christian in a way totally unrelated to the adversities or circumstantial blessings of this life. Okay, I like Boyce's definition, but I want to tweak it a little bit, okay? Boyce said that joy is not circumstantial. I would suggest to you that, biblically speaking, joy is fully circumstantial, it's just that it's based on heavenly circumstances, not earthly circumstances. I think that's the proper distinction. Joy is based on heavenly circumstances, not earthly circumstances. So what are those heavenly circumstances that Paul says we get our joy from? Read read with me in Philippians 1 verses 3 through 5, and let's ask that question as we read the text. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's why. That's the connection Paul is making. Your partnership in the gospel is the basis for joy. All right, so of course now we have to ask the question, what does it mean to partner in the gospel? What is Paul getting at when he says that? First and foremost, it means that you embrace the gospel. In other words, you're a Christian. It means that you have in your life the grace of that comes from the gospel alone. That's what it means first and foremost. Read with me again what Paul says in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. It is right for me to feel this way. What way? In a way of joy. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. You have in your life the grace that comes from the gospel alone. I'm from Richmond. I don't know most of you very well. I don't know what's happening in your lives right now for the most part. But in a group this size, undoubtedly, many of you are going through some severe difficulties, trials, troubles, heartache. And uh, maybe you're not, but uh, just normal life has its various Heartbreaking bumps in the road. We all understand that at least to one degree or another. The tragedies in our lives are real. And so is the sorrow that comes from them. We can't downplay that if we're going to be honest. And God is a God of honesty. But in the gospel, we see our heavenly circumstances that are far more powerful far more foundational than any hardship we may face. Well, what are our heavenly circumstances? Let's take a a step back and look at that. And it's interesting that Paul lays out what they are in these first few verses of Philippians chapter 1. Four theological terms, and we'll, we'll unpack these. Justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. Interestingly, Paul really summarizes them all up front. Paul uh, does that very well in many places. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Who does he address this letter to? He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. It's interesting, you know, being Presbyterians, we're quick to confess, and rightly so, that we're sinners before God, and that's true, Uh, otherwise we wouldn't need a Savior. But it's interesting that, biblically speaking, Paul almost never refers to Christians as sinners. He almost always refers to them as saints, literally holy ones. So what's going on there? This, this, this gets into what theologians refer to as the great exchange, where for believers in Christ who are looking to Christ and running to Him for uh, friendship with God, Jesus takes our sin onto Himself on the cross, and He takes His righteousness and declares it to be ours. That's why Paul refers to believers as holy ones, because that's who we are in Christ, that's justification. That's how he has made us right with God. Look at what he says in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This refers to adoption. He refers to God as our Father. Of course, the implication is we've been adopted. By nature, Paul says this elsewhere, by nature we are enemies of God. Do you realize that? that that's your starting point is an enemy of God. It's not very flattering, it's not very American, but it's biblical, it's true. By nature we are enemies of God, but through Christ God has taken His enemies and has adopted them as His own sons and daughters. That's adoption. We have two little girls, uh, Francine and Lillian. Uh, Lillian's two and a half years old and Francine is four and a half years old. I don't know if you might have little girls or little girls that grew up, but um, Francine is into this princess stage right now. She's always wanting to marry me. She's always wanting to walk down the aisle and marry Daddy. And, of course, I playfully say, oh, well, I can't marry you. I'm, I'm already married to Mommy. She says, oh, Daddy, I just want to pretend. So then we walk down the aisle, and she does it very well. She, and she's really into Cinderella right now. She just loves weddings and princesses. And, and in fact, she actually said to me one time... Um, She said, Daddy, I really have two daddies. And I was a little concerned, and I'm like, what do you mean you have two daddies? She said, well, you're my daddy, and God is my daddy. And I'm thinking, that's good theology. That's good. That's good. And I said, you know, because you know, of course, Prince William and Princess Kate just got married recently on the other side of the pond and uh, we missed the wedding itself. We were actually on vacation at the time but we turned on the TV right after the wedding and we saw them come out and again, being in that princess state, she, she loved it. And at, at the grocery store she sees their pictures on the magazine covers and all those kinds of things. And I said, uh, you know, because we, we play princess, you know, Cinderella's a pretend princess but uh, Prince William and Princess Kate, those are real. That's a real prince and, and a real princess. And uh, I've I told Francine. I said, you know, well, I've asked her before. I've said, are you are you a real princess or a pretend princess? And she'd say, oh, well, we're just pretending, Daddy. And it's an opportunity for me to say, well, actually, do you realize that you're actually more of a real princess than Princess Kate, who is a real princess in the British Empire, because your father is a king the king of all kings, and by definition, that makes you a real princess. And that's a greater reality than any prince or princess we would have on this planet. So now when I ask her, are you a real or pretend princess, she's quick to say, I'm a real princess. And that's a good understanding of the Bible's teaching of adoption. We are adopted by the king of all kings. And then we see sanctification in verse 6. Read with me what Paul says there. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. By nature, we are enemies of God, and God has adopted us and has declared us to be righteous. But also, by nature, we're powerless. We're powerless to love God, we're powerless to run after God, we're powerless to do anything in and of ourselves by nature towards God. And that's what sanctification is all about. Uh, He who began a good work in you, God will carry it on to completion. God is working in you to produce His kingdom within your heart to make you more like Christ. He is doing what you can't do. That's sanctification. And then glorification, He will do this until the day of Christ Jesus when it will be complete. We will see Him as He is, as John says in 1 John, and in seeing Him as He is, we will be made like Him. So it's amazing that in just these first few verses, Paul really packs in the gospel. Justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, bam, all right there. These are our heavenly circumstances. And our heavenly circumstances are far more important, are far more significant than any earthly circumstance, they are far too secure to be shaken by anything in this life, regardless of how tragic they may be. Uh, when I was with RUF, back in 2003 and 09, um, twice a year we would go to Atlanta or Dallas or somewhere for training. And uh, it was kind of a nerve-wracking kind of thing, at least for me, and I think it was for a lot of us, uh, because you had some, some pillars of RUF there, and, and there was this pressure, uh, just inevitably, to be funny or cool or entertaining and all, all these kinds of things, and in many ways it was like junior high all over again. And it's like, you, you're glad to get past that point, and then here it is all over again. And you find yourself in a corner watching everybody else have a good time, and you wonder what's wrong with you and you find that your joy is gone. And there are many other examples, of course, in all of our lives where we find how our joy seeps away for one reason or another. I remember one, one particular training where this really bothered me, and I, I prayed about it, and uh, God taught me the gospel all, all over again. <laughs> and He really impressed upon me two things. Uh, one is just reminding me of our heavenly circumstances, which we've just unpacked here, As Paul lays them out in these first few verses, ultimately, everything is right with me in the world. I mean, on a foundational level, because of my heavenly circumstances. And that really restored my joy. I mean, you just realize the context within which all of this is happening. And the second thing God impressed upon me was, even if that weren't true, it's not about me anyway. So what's the deal? It's about the gospel. It's about God and what He is doing in this world. That's what it's about. And I had the privilege of plugging into that, and so do you. That's what it's about. God reminded me that every situation finds itself in a greater gospel context. It's it's not that we unplug ourselves. It's not that we bury our head in the sands. We, of all people, are able to be brutally honest with the troubles and brokenness of life because the troubles and brokenness of life find themselves in the greater context of a superseding gospel. And so my joy was restored. That's why Paul was able to have joy in the midst of the sorrows of his life in prison awaiting potential death. Paul understood that the current of joy that comes from our heavenly circumstances flows deeper than the circumstances of this life can touch. So partnering in the gospel means that we embrace the gospel. That's part one. But it also means that we put that gospel into practice. And this is what Paul has in mind in verse 5. When he says that he has joy because of your partnership in the gospel. We put the gospel into practice. We know that this is what Paul means in verse 5 because Paul refers to the nature of the Philippians' partnership throughout his letter. And here's how he refers to it. For example, in chapter 1, verse 19, I'm just going to reference these, he refers to their partnership as the Philippians prayed on Paul's behalf. In chapter 4, verse 10, he refers to their partnership in the gospel as the Philippians gave money to support Paul's ministry. See, Paul was not afraid of support raising. (laughs) And in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul refers to the Philippians' partnership in the gospel as he refers to the fact that they stood by Paul and they suffered with him in the midst of his suffering. So he tells us throughout the letter how... The Philippians are partnering in the gospel with him. The practice of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel basically amounted to strengthening the church and advancing the kingdom of God in this world. That's just another way to say it when you read how Paul references their partnership in the gospel, strengthening the church and advancing the kingdom of God in this world. After all, that's what God is up to. makes sense. It does make sense why joy would come from this kind of partnership. The expansion of the kingdom of God is what God is up to in this world, and the church is the instrument through which He is doing it. So when, when we seek to strengthen the church and expand God's kingdom, we are plugging into the ultimate purpose for created reality. That's just pretty cool if you just think about it. If that's not a source for joy, what is? And strengthening the church doesn't just mean spreading the gospel. It does mean that, but it doesn't just mean that. It means to pray for each other, to encourage each other, to meet each other's needs, as we see as an example in chapter 4, verse 14. That's how he said they were participating in the gospel. In short, it means to enter into each other's lives from mutual edification, as Paul says in Ephesians and elsewhere. I love how Paul says in chapter 2, we ought to view others in the body of Christ. This is, this is so hard, but this is where joy comes from. He says in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Who's good at that? That's tough. It's, it's tough enough to consider others as the same as yourself because we're always thinking about ourselves. But Paul says, in humility, consider others better, superior to yourself, better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interest but also to the interest of others. And interestingly, this is the, Paul says this is the attitude that Jesus himself had, God in the flesh. How could that be? God is better than us. But God, become man, took on this attitude of humility in himself, seeing us as better than himself. Wow, that's that's interesting. And Paul calls us to follow his example. God is calling us to make it our purpose in life to consciously look for ways to serve and strengthen each other, even when it hurts. It hurts because we prefer to think about ourselves, just naturally, we do. And it also hurts because... When there's a real need, oh boy, this is going to cost me somehow. This is going to hurt. It hurts. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. That's the way Bonhoeffer said it. And paradoxically, this dying is where our joy comes from because we know that we can afford to lose our lives in service to one another, because we know that our partnership in the gospel is far more wonderful than anything we could ever give up in the service of our brothers, because we know that our partnership in the gospel is far more significant than any tragedy that the circumstances of this life could possibly throw our way, though tragic they may certainly be. That's the gospel context. After Horatio Spafford learned that his four daughters were lost, he sailed to the area where the ship sank. When he arrived, Spafford went down into his cabin and near the scene of his daughter's tragic death, in the midst of his genuine plugged-in sorrow, he penned these now famous words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, that's on that hand, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, either one, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. This is what Spafford is getting at. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, Let this blessed assurance control, he's reminding himself of the gospel context, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul that trumps. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. He's just reminding himself of the gospel context. Justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. As Paul lays out here, he's reminding himself of that greater gospel context within which he he is genuinely suffering. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so it is well with my soul. Even in the midst of real sorrow spafford knew the deeper undercurrent of joy that came from his partnership in the gospel let's pray